0: podcast was recorded on January 7th, 2020. The views and opinions expressed herein are as of the date recorded and should not be construed as an offer to buy or sell any securities. Such views and opinions may differ from those of DoubleLine Capital or of its affiliates and are subject to change without notice. DoubleLine has no obligation to provide any updates or changes. <laughs>
1: All right, welcome to the first episode of The Sherman Show for 2020. I'm here with my co-host, Sam Lau. Hey, hey. And today we have a returning guest, Jeff Mayberry, portfolio manager here at Double Line, to help us talk markets and the outlook for 2020. Good
2: morning. Good morning. Good morning, Good
1: morning, Jeff. Good morning Jeff. All right, so um, what we want to start off with is, uh, have we done the past? Talk about uh, the, the wrap-up from 2019, what the outlook looks like for 2020, what this consensus, what's the street saying, what we're saying here at Double Line, and I'm going to take it easy today and turn it over to Sam Lau, who's actually going to be the host today and kick off the, the discussion between me and Mr. Mayberry. Woo! Sounds about right. So let's start like out with the Rick 20, uh,
3: <laughs> Let's start off the 2019 wrap up here and see how uh, assets did across the spectrum. Uh, so we, if you take a look around the. The universe of assets today um, through 2019, it looks like it was a year where almost everything made money, which is pretty much the opposite of what happened in what we're saying in 2018. So if we take a look at U.S. equities, you know, you're know, you looking at a range of anywhere from about mid-20% positive returns up to the, the winner of the year for U.S. equities and NASDAQ up almost 35% on a total return basis. You look at the all country, uh, the Acqui index, um, even on an ex US basis, it was up over 20% on uh, US dollar terms. Uh, pretty much go across the globe, the Nikkei, emerging markets, uh, the Euro stocks, they're all up almost uh, uh, 20% or more. Switch over to the fixed income market, you have seen much of the same type of trend, uh, mid to mid single digits uh, type of returns to mid teens, anywhere from looks like the the low point of the spectrum was U.S. Treasuries at about uh, 7% positive return. U.S. Uh, corporate credit returned about 14%. So you kind of have the, the highs and the lows there all on the positive basis. Moving over to currency land, FX, pretty much flat for the year. I mean, if you take a look at the Dixie, it started and ended the year about the same level. Let's call it about 20 basis points in a positive move. So for all the strength that people have been talking about in U.S. dollar, you got a whopping 20 or so basis points. Uh, looking at commodities, you know, hey, commodities this year were quite positive. Taking a look at WTI crude oil um, and Brent crude oil, both were up uh, double digits. He had 26% on Brent and 35% roughly on the spot basis for WTI crude oil. And gold had a great year as well, up almost 20% on the year. So looking across the spectrum, you know, you start to think about, are we going to be able to continue this back into, into 2020 or you're going to have a, a type of reversal that we've seen in the last uh, few years where you have good years followed by bad years followed by good years so we'll see what 2020 has in store here uh, with regard to what the street thinks uh, for what it's worth we have a, you know surveys from around looks like about 10 uh, major players on the Wall Street side of things uh, I'll just go ahead and rattle off some um, forecasts that they have, starting with 2020 U.S. real GDP. Uh, currently, we're looking at a number of about 2.1%. And on average, for 2020, the forecast is 1.7. So it looks like a little bit of slowing in growth. But I would argue that that's still pretty decent you know, in, in the scheme of
1: things, especially when you look at that relative to the rest of the world. Well, I think that's a good point to jump in here, Jeff, because when you look at GDP, you know, there was a lot of fear going on in the middle of the summer of this year a lot of it just stemming from the trade conflict. Um, You saw the collapse in the manufacturing sector um, all year last year, and it continued to kind of decelerate until really the fourth quarter. And so in looking at GDP, I think a lot of people are are, are amazed by how well GDP looks like it'll come through in 2019. And a lot of that has been on the back of of the consumer, as everybody talks about. So when you think about GDP, there's much been made about – The manufacturing side, the ISM data still looks pretty weak on that side. We got the non-manufacturing index, got a a new uh, kind of bounce back again um, this week. So how are you thinking about GDP this year? Do you think we can continue this trend growth? Um, When I look across the the estimates that Sam provided to us, I see the the Uber bear, I'm not going to call them out, at 0.7 real GDP. I'd say that they're probably looking at the Eurozone, they're not the U.S. But everybody is really hovering this high ones number. Um, How are you thinking about GDP? Looking at the pieces, thinking about – I think it was three major components. There's the manufacturing. Um, double digits, but very low double digits, increase piece of the economy. Housing's the next biggest contributor. And then lastly, the consumer. So what do you think about those kind of three legs as we go into 2020? Yeah, I think that when you look at it, when you look at last year, look at 2019,
2: you had the Fed come in mid-year and almost made everything better. And that that kind of led to the GDP revisions or GDP bouncing back from their lows back to to, to good, to good numbers. And I think that with the Fed, you know, we haven't talked about the Fed yet and I'm sure we will get into that, but I think, you know, the Fed outlook or or what the Fed does is going to have a big effect on how kind of the economy works. And I think that, uh, you know, if you, if you talk about street forecasts of what what the Fed's going to do and it's going to keep GDP up at, at at a reasonable number, again, not 5%, not, not a great number, but still reasonable. And, and especially as, as Sam said, compared to the rest of the world, you know, a, a two point one or a two point three or whatever whatever you know, two handle or high ones is is pretty
1: good. Yeah. Especially before we are at this point in the cycle. And I think as you're mentioning the Fed, uh, I think a lot of people forget that monetary policy operates with a pretty significant lag. And you get estimates, is it three to six months? Some people say twelve to twenty-four months. But I, I think that's what you've seen in a lot of the data in the fourth quarter is responding to those first rate cuts. And I think the first rate cut You know, we saw in July uh, that was really just on the back of a reversal of what we saw in December of eighteen, where the Fed was kind of naively saying we're going to normalize rates, uh, the balance sheet doesn't matter, and then that kind of reared its ugly head once again in in late third quarter, in the middle of September. And so, no, I think that that support from the Fed is probably why you saw some of the bounce in the economic data um, in the fourth quarter especially in December, I mean, things seem to be, you know, some some things that are still on the negative seem to be on that upward trajectory. Now, I'm not a big second derivative rally kind of guy or green shoots that we saw back in 2019 or 2009. Uh, But in general, I think that much has been focused on the manufacturing side of the equation, and we're leaving out the consumer. So, Sam, let me ask you, you know, we look at unemployment rates today, 3.5% is the uh, U3 rate, right, that's published out there. Um, You have average hourly earnings near cycle highs. If you take in supervisory plus non-supervisory employees, you're getting something about 3.7%, which is right near the highs of the cycle. And so can the consumer continue to carry this? I mean, unemployment's low, albeit a lagged indicator, not a forward-looking one, but you have wage growth there. There seems to be pretty decent spending in there. Savings rates are still up, too. Um, now that we're getting this. And remember, inflation right now, headline inflation, is right about 2.1%. So you have the consumer that's making progress really for the first time in 2018 and 2019 um, was the first time in the cycle that wage growth was outstripping inflation, at least in a meaningful manner.
3: Yeah. Neil, if you take a look at that at the face level, it is very positive for you know what seems to be for the, the U.S. consumer. But one of the things that we have to start showing some concern over potentially is just the what is it, the uh, employment cost index as well, because as you're getting these, you know, uh, above trend, I suppose you can say of late for average hourly earnings where it's trending up closer to 4% on a nominal basis on a year-over-year basis, it seems pretty strong, especially if you, you know, compare it to uh, the consumer price index, which is putting in around right now about 2.1%. On a headline basis, a little bit higher for a core basis. It seems positive, and it seems like the U.S. consumer will have – Uh, some spending power going in, Uh, whether or not they'll have the continued willingness to do so, I think, depends highly on the labor market that you talked about before. Because one of the things, given that the U.S. consumer is roughly, let's say, 70 percent of the U.S. economy, if uh, corporations start, you know, sensing weakness, as we've seen somewhat from, you know, perhaps the CFO studies that's, you know, been put out of uh, Duke in in terms of expectations for the future uh, for hiring plans, then you know That could be a hurdle for the U.S. economy going forward, given these input costs. But I did want to take it back to something that we were talking about
1: before. Well, you, you sound like an employer all of a sudden, right? <laughs> You're calling it the employment costs You're not talking about the the platitudes to to actually labor, uh, actually getting a benefit. Capital and labor both won last year, I'd argue, um, in this having issued rattled off those returns for the year. But also, as you look at the labor market, I think I've heard some criticism that it's the lower end jobs, the lower education, and kind of the lower paying jobs that have had the bigger gains. I actually think that's more of a positive than a negative. And I think of that because that helps stimulate across. It's not just the wealth effects. When you look at asset prices and the higher earners are the ones making more money, but to actually be more broadly participated. So I do think that's a that's a positive trend in the economy. Uh, again, we'll have to monitor to see if it does uh, continues to pull through. But before you jump onto that, too, I think um, you know for those that s- that follow the labor market, one of the be- best leading indicators happens to be jobless claims. Right, so uh, when you go out and do initial claims and continuing claims, and there's been a lot of uh, hubbub about uh, initial claims going up. Uh, that they've been starting to go up and they've been on trend for the last couple of months. But when you pull out the chart of initial employment. I mean, we're Still talking off, off of the lows. Very low basis, right. right? And so there's been a huge improvement since two thousand nine in the labor market. And I think you're starting to see more broad participation. So um, although the CFO studies talk about, you know, cost and yes, now we have to give out benefits. There's health care. It's not just actual wages. It includes all the compensatory packages. Yeah. But
3: no, I think that's fair. And uh, yeah, definitely you know, as I started out saying that the the Increased paycheck to the end user is always a good thing but you always have to keep in, you know, in mind the, the the cost employers in terms of their ability to, to sustain that on their end as well um, but
2: I think when you look at employment costs
3: historically or at least over the past
2: 20 years that every time that your your cost your employment cost starts to rise the fed's tightening yeah. right and so so there you know you can look at it cynically and say the fed's keeping the man down mm-hmm. but it's really right now there're there the Fed is is you know, on on hold or, or going to be easing, or the market's pricing in fifty percent chance of an easing. So I think you can get you can get the employment to to, to still benefit from from
1: rising you know costs. And I think that's a great point too. Now, as you'd mentioned uh, to kick us off here, talking about the Fed going into easing mode in twenty nineteen, uh, they are on pause right now. I think that's what they want to do. I think Jerome just wants to come out and just – he wants to just have the shortest press conference. I keep saying this, but he doesn't want to go out there. He's hoping to talk about something else. But I think to your point, um, the reason that you don't see the Fed doing that is because inflation isn't at these critical levels. But also, if you go back and and look through – uh, the swath of the labor market statistics, I think that the Fed you know, is very uh, happy because when you look at essentially wage from aggregate hours worked, right, times kind of the wage growth, you're seeing income, that, using that as an income proxy, it's, it's back on an upward trajectory again. And a lot of people who focus on it, especially if you strip out manufacturing, now, and it's this old joke of if you take all the negative things in your portfolio and get them, you'll be up, or at least you won't be negative. But um, I do think that um, there's too much focus on on the manufacturing sector. today. Now, again, to our listeners out there that sit in Detroit or, you know, that are employed in that sector, there is obviously a reason to be concerned. Um, and we've seen hours work go down there. But I'm still amazed by this when I look at manufacturing these aggregate data stats that even though hours worked are down, they're still greater than 40 hours a week, right? That, that's still pretty amazing, I think. So uh, although we are getting some kind of negative signals there, um, I, I think that, you know, we've got to continue to focus on the other piece of the economy. I think that's you know what had some people
3: scared going into or going through 2019 is when you did see that dip down in in terms of the, the ISM manufacturing survey dropping into uh contractionary indication levels, right? And that's, and that's a
1: global phenomenon, right? This is not just exactly. something that it's here in the US and uh, I've been very critical of it, just simply the fact that it is heavily concentrated in automotives. Right, we have a problem in the automotive sector globally. There's not enough demand uh, for the amount of supply of vehicles out there, and this has been a trend for you know five plus years. And as I like to point out, is that what helped the U.S. automotive industry was actually the hurricanes back in 15 and 16, when you had Harvey and the likes, you had a, a decimation of a lot of vehicles. Insurance pays off, and it was allowing them to draw down inventory. Since they continue to produce at levels um, that aren't really necessary, I think in today's market, just given the idea that cars last longer, right? They're way more expensive uh, by by all measures. Um, they're at all-time highs, even on an inflation-adjusted basis. And so I think that there is something that's that's um, rooted in the automotive industry um, that is causing this. Now, granted, it's a big part of industrials, right? And it doesn't help with um, uh, also the Boeing issue. Um, you know, uh, Again, the confidence that's been lost in that company. We had another plane crash this week, um, yesterday. We still don't know all the details of that. But Boeing definitely has not just a an industrial problem. They have a PR problem as well. And so again, I think those things are in there in those surveys that that is a big piece of our industrial economy
3: that's right, and it's, it's, we always have to keep in mind too it's what percentage of the u s economy is is manufacturing is uh,
1: like, yeah it's somewhere to like months. eleven, twelve, thirteen percent just depends on kind of the measure you look at but it's it's in the low low double digits, yeah. so and, it, yeah, a lot of times when we look at it, and, you know I started out by saying in you know two thousand and sixteen
3: we saw a manufacturing contraction that did not lead to an economic recession. I think you need to look at the the counterpoint to the ISM uh, manufacturing number, which is the, the – Non-manufacturing. <laughs> exactly, which Easy is the other your piece. So right. it's effectively – I
1: mean if but we're also looking remember at this. something like
3: that, you want to have some type of corroboration. You know, yeah. via, but remember this,
1: part of manufacturing is also the energy patch, right, the oil mm-hmm. patch that we have there. And getting oil prices back north of $60 is helpful uh, to the U.S. production. Uh, but you know we, we still feel here that you need to be closer to 70 to actually turn some profitability in these areas, just to be given the debt structures and, and um, uh, the competition globally there. And so we need a prolonged oil price at these levels, I think, to help bring that back. And you've seen that there has been a resurrection of jobs within the oil patch, specifically kind of the Midland, you know, West Texas kind of area.
3: Yeah, and you're talking – you mentioned, Jeff, uh, Sherman, actually, the the resurrection in prices for – U.S. Uh, crude oil. I just wanted to see with what Mayberry would think in terms of the longevity of oil prices where they're at today. I mean, we had a pretty significant ramp up, as I mentioned earlier. We had on the spot basis about 35% increase on the year-over-year basis through uh, December 31st, 2019. Where do you think crude oil um, goes from here? Well, I think when we looked at it
2: this year, or, or I guess last year, um, you, as you said, it was up a lot. But you, it kind of feels like there's a floor to, to oil prices. It was forty five dollars a barrel WTI and and you know December 31st, 2018, $61 a barrel um, at the end of the 2019. But it has been in that fifty to sixty dollar range or fifty five to sixty dollar range uh, for, for, for a good portion of the of of the year. And you know it kind of feels like that it, it's it's very much range bound in, in in some sort of range, so you could you could say there's a floor, whether it's at sixty or fifty five or fifty. Um, it doesn't feel like we're going to be going down to the twenties again, like we were. Um, it was 2015,
3: 2016, Feb 2016, um, yeah. And so, bucks. so I
2: think that you in and you had you always have that geopolitical risk uh, of higher oil prices. You saw a little bit of
1: that last night. Yeah, um, yeah. We've seen that. We've seen that really as as the calendar's turned here, as there's been some new conflict. But you know, I, I think that the other part of the commodity complex that you know was really uh, did not participate as much in the rally was copper, right? And so I think a lot of that had been hit by the trade war. Uh, there's much made about soybeans and like because of the purchases. Uh, news alert: the the Chinese will not buy. You know, 15 million tons of soybeans. Um, they haven't done that in, in many years. In fact, on it takes like two or three years to get that consumption pattern back. But there there is definitely talks of phase one of the trade deal. Does anyone actually know what phase one of the trade deal is? I know we talk about phase one, but what are the details there? Are there? No, that's right. There are no details. We're, we're, yeah, but, right. But I, I do think that I you know with the election coming up and uh, Trump understanding how important the economy will be going into that election, uh, that it is important to really dial back down some of this uh, this rhetoric. That said, we do have tariffs still that are significantly higher than they were two years ago. And when you look at the basket goods that have been tariffed, it's 12% higher. Uh, but does that lead to inflation, I think is the question. Uh, do you think that that will actually get us to some levels of inflation, or are we already priced that in given the fact that it's already happened?
2: I think you you saw the, the prices in in those commodities shoot up, you know, in the trade during the trade conflict, and that. So, I, I think you can marginally there'll be some effects on, on inflation on um, on headline inflation, but I don't think it's really going to be too material. It's not going to be certainly material enough where uh, you start worrying that inflation is getting out of hand, that it's going to it's going to skyrocket, and that you know that you don't want to be you know the Fed's going to be raising rates. Um I think that you know it's on the margin, and it's a little bit higher, but it's not gonna be something that's uh too significant. Yeah, and I
1: think from our macro team the stuff that we've put together, um, you know, kind of what we've seen is around a two and a half percent inflation rate for twenty twenty, which is is high uh by 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 sure. recent levels, but that's not something you know I, I think one of our analysts around here the other day said Oh, this is going to be stagflation, low growth and high inflation. I'm like, whoa, so we go from, you know, like a two, three growth rate to like one nine, let's say. Um, and then inflation goes from two to 2.5. It's like, uh, I don't think you've been around long enough to know what actual stagflation is. And so, uh, you know, I think there's a lot to be focused on here. But I don't think, you know, if you listen to what the Fed said um, over the last few months, I mean, Jay has been very very adamant about the idea that we had to see a significant uptick in inflation to actually hike rates at this point. In and and Persistence. And persistence. That's that's the key. So um, we we do see, again, assuming core stays in there, core inflation that is stripping out the commodity prices, you know, core inflation probably does continue to print in the at least north of two uh, from the way we're looking at the data set right now. And so it's all about commodity price to drive the other side. Um, but uh, there is that disconnect still. So when we're talking about inflation right now, I think we're all talking about core, uh, the, the CPI, right? number, Not core, but the um, Consumer Price Index. I forgot what the C stood for all of a sudden. Uh, but the CPI is what we're focused on, where the Fed uses PC. And there's a huge disconnect between those two measures today. And a lot of it has to do with health care. But when we start to look at it, um, I think that you, you see that the Fed has responded. Is it a mid-cycle adjustment or not? I mean, only time will bear I mean, I that, think out. that- the mid-cycle part is. It seems like
2: you know Powell may be right. It, maybe it's not a mid-cycle adjustment. Maybe it's like a mid-to-late cycle adjustment. Yeah, it's so an adjustment. C- but you certainly don't want to say late yeah. cycle adjustment because that gives people the fear that it's going to end sometime soon. Right. So I think looking back on it now, we made fun of it at the time, yeah. Yeah. but. It re-
1: Mid-cycle adjustment might be the right phrase – might have been the right phrase to use. Well, remember, it's a confidence game at the end of it too, right? If if if, if Jay goes up to the podium at the next conference and says, you know, I, I'm just really worried about everything, <laughs> you know, I don't think markets respond right, very well right. to that, right? So, I mean, he's trying his best to, to give the language. And, you know, uh, they had some other challenges in the market. The repo facility uh, blew up in September of 17 – or September 17th of 2019. Uh, but I, I think that the Fed – for all the, the criticism we give them, I, I have to say the Fed did a good job of managing the repo rate, right? Because what you see at at the year-end spike that we saw, and we were talking about this at the end of 18, the big spike we saw in repo, and GC repo specifically. Um, but what you saw at the end of this year, we didn't really get the big spike. Yeah, it always upticks because the window dressing, the banks don't really tell you what they owe, and there's a lot of shuffling around to make sure you can get in the reg, uh, to adhere to the regulatory scheme. But when you think about, Actually, how that market was more well behaved—it's a pretty good idea. Now, the criticism is the expansion of the balance sheet, right? So, I think um, the data I saw yesterday was on the last six months. We've done about three hundred eighty billion dollar increase in the balance sheet. So, uh, so let's let's talk about that part real quick. And so, I'll, I'll I'll bounce this to either one of you. So, is it QE or is it not QE? And that is the question. <laughs>
3: I mean, I think at the end of the day, it's it's semantics. It's the, the, the terminology of, it. and I think based on what we were just discussing, that is important on um, what they call it, because as we've seen as we've discussed, the one of the tools of the Fed, you know, in, in addition to interest rate you know, uh, adjustments, as well as what we've seen with QE today, is also forward-looking guidance. For the expectations. So if you know, Powell were to come out and just say, label this as QE, I think that sets a certain emotional um, equivalent in investor and consumer behavior saying, OK, well, we're going into QE again because there's
1: something wrong. But
2: isn't it so easy to be like, it's not QE, but then just convert it to QE. Well, like, historically, correct. it has. It's so anytime correct. they've right.
1: increased these things like this um, in, since the crisis, it's turned into quantitative easing. And so I think it is semantics, right? Um, I think of quantitative easing as yield curve manipulation, right? right? Uh, the, the Japanese call it yield curve control. Or targeting. <laughs> manipulation <laughs> sounds horrible. It's yeah. called oh, it yeah, yeah. Let's call it targeting. Okay. I, I don't think Powell's going to come out and say, we're manipulating markets. <laughs> that, that's a good thing on the confidence <laughs> side. I don't think that's something that you want to say. Um, but I think it, targeting the front of the curve is a lot different than – buying bonds out the curve now slippery slope because we saw it was overnight reposts they were doing overnight facilities it turned to seven day facility turned to 14 day turned to 30 day now we're at 90 91 day facilities on it so the question is is that still front end I argue yes um and I you know you guys have seen me in our asset allocation meetings I've been the one saying it's not QE I'm starting to rethink that a little bit because you know it's getting larger one Secondly, the term's moving out. But remember, the Fed has a rate they have to target. If, you, if the market doesn't trade at your target rate, and I'm talking about Fed funds rate, which it did not back in September, it got above the targeted range, then you need to do something, because... If that's what you're targeting, your job is open market operations to get those rates where they need to be. talk about confidence. Right. (laughs) Uh, Here's our target rate. We just (laughs) missed it by 100 (laughs) basis points. Now, now we're talking about a couple basis points. It was the hundreds. But it does matter, though, right? And I think um, it is important that they get that market working. And I'll actually blame part of Treasury for that, too, because the amount of bill issuance has been massive. And by treasury focusing so much on shorter term rates, I think you flooded that market and that's why you saw pressure on the front of the curve. Now, there's a lot of nuance behind it of dollar funding and the likes, and we won't bore everybody with those details. But I think that I, I, I want to give the Fed a, a thumbs up for something because although it took a lot of money, now I'll give them a thumbs down for the other side is that now what's the plan? Right? So you've done this. How do you how do you make this market function again? Or are you just gonna have the standing repo facility? So People think there's going to have to be the standing facility for forever uh, at this point. And, you know, look, at the end of the day, it is debt monetization. So uh, I think that somehow it needs to be coordinated better with Treasury of the issuance. And I still don't understand, and I'll, I'll ask uh, Mr. Mnuchin this question since he's an avid listener of The Sherman Show, I'm sure, um, ask him, why aren't we issuing longer bonds, Right. Well, if there's so much demand out there for the thirty-year, for the ten-year, people love duration these days. Why aren't we taking advantage? Of? Why are we flooding the front of the curve? And he hasn't gotten back to us yet, but I'll put it out there. Maybe he'll send us. I, mean, email I think afterwards. that I was thinking
2: about it just when we were talking, you know, five minutes ago or two minutes ago, and it's it just seems like the when you look at the the stock market and it's been reacting very poorly to higher long-term rates, ten-year, thirty-year. So if they start issuing longer-term rates, then everything else being equal, rates should go up, and maybe then that affects the stock market. And then they don't want to. Maybe President Trump is saying, "We got to keep stock stocks up till the election. Then we can issue
1: longer-term rates or longer-term bonds." But there's something you're missing there. You just got to call the plunge protection team, (laughs) PPT. Yeah, right. Right. So it's not just for PowerPoint, right? Well, the, the other thing is
3: too didn't. I mean, I know they've been considering the 50, and you know, potentially we laugh at, it, but perhaps the 100-year bond as well. But didn't Mnuchin float around the idea of the 50-year no, uh, bond and? People kind of just dismissed it. They said, "No, that's not." I mean, look—if you look,
1: look at the at. spread, you probably got to charge you, you. probably clears at ten to fifteen basis points higher than the long bond today. The, the thirty-year, we'd have to start calling that the long bond, I guess. Um, but <laughs> you know, if you think well, about is that,
3: that it? <laughs> is that it? Fifteen to
1: twenty. Basis points? I, I, yeah, oh, it's it does It doesn't. I mean, look yeah. at what Apple Apple did Century Bond a few years back in pesos. You know, right? So, or actually, it didn't euros. It wasn't pesos. They were euros. I get those that's two right, confused. Right. Uh, but actually, when you look back at it, it's a, that, that's kind of been the estimate of that 15 basis points or so is what it would do. So, you're talking about sub two and a half, right? Sub two and a half rate in, in this And current what's inflation?
3: Market. What's inflation again? Yeah,
1: I think it was two one. So, maybe that's the answer. Maybe that's what it is. Maybe the Fed's real job here is that they want negative real yields. Right? So they don't want to issue anything that's above that, that level. But as we're talking about, if assuming that our macro ideas are right and inflation runs around 2.5, sounds like a zero real yield to me. And worst case, you just have Fed open up the balance sheet. They buy the bonds. Remember, the beautiful thing about QE that I love to remind people about, that I think they forget a lot of times, is that every bond, every Treasury bond on the Fed's balance sheet pays zero interest. The U.S. government finances that at zero because – the coupons are rebated back to Treasury. It's the. Oh, what? <laughs> Nothing. Oh, <that's> okay. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. So uh, ultimately, it's the best self financing scheme there is in the world. And to say why we've been negative on the dollar, we continue to be, it's because of that certain type of scheme that Mr. Uh, Lau just talked about. Well,
2: shouldn't the Treasury just issue some, like,
1: very low coupon perp bond and just have the Fed buy it all? <laughs> well, this if you go back, remember uh, Bernanke, when he was uh, – I think he was still a Fed governor before he was uh, the chairman of the Fed, was talking about issuing uh, these trillion-dollar trillion coins, dollar coins right? right? And so uh, I think there still is a Wikipedia page on the trillion-dollar <laughs> coin out there. And all you're going to do is just issue it. The Mint prints one of them. It's worth a trillion. And the Fed just takes it and puts it in the safety deposit box, and poof, it's gone. Well, we haven't had
3: a trillion-dollar coin yet. We might have had a trillion-dollar note through. Was it Was it Zimbabwe? Was there a trillion-dollar? It's $100. Hundred trillion, oh, sorry, sorry. we yep. on multiple. A $100 trillion note. But we haven't had the trillion-dollar coin yet as uh so granak wanted. Don't but. go steal it, but there are two sitting <laughs> on my desk upstairs. So, uh, How much are they worth today? <laughs> I, uh, yeah.
1: I think we overpaid for them when we bought them yeah. many years ago. I think we paid a few <laughs> dollars for them, even though they're worth probably pennies today.
3: But bringing it back to this idea of the trillion-dollar coin that was you know, brought up by uh, Bernanke, another idea that he's been you know, putting around lately is one of negative yields here in the U.S. Negative interest rate policy, I should say, NERP. here in the U.S. NERP. What are your thoughts on
1: that? I mean, do you Hate think it. that's
3: going to come around? Do you Hate think it. it's working? Has it worked?
1: Hate it. Uh, have you have you heard my opinion on this? I well, think it's like a it? stupid policy. Um, uh, so l- let's talk about it. Let's talk about how it has worked in other economies. Bernanke or hasn't worked or has not worked. That's that's a better way of saying it, Jeff. Um, so look at what happened in Japan. Bernanke is a student of the depression. He's a student of Japanese policy. He has given you that if you look back over the last. 17 years. He gave you the playbook of how they were going to tackle this. When the next crisis came, they were going to go to zero rates. Um, They were maybe going to go negative. They were going to buy a bunch of bonds. It's exactly what the Japanese model had been. Okay. Then we did QE first. We got rates down. Europe followed. Europe then started the massive QE. They went to negative rates. How has that worked, Jeff? Not very well. Not very well. Okay. So it has not worked there. So that's, let's now follow two examples. So the sample size is small. We have N equals 2. Um, so you know, we don't have a lot of robustness in the data set. However, uh, what makes us think that negative interest rate policy would work well here? What has it done in Japan? It's destroyed their banking system. What is it doing in Europe? It is destroying or, if it not, has already caused a lot of catastrophic, do- uh, uh, catastrophic be- uh, uh, behavior in that market as well. Here's the thing. I have hope the other way around, Sam. I'm the optimist in the, in this uh, discussion today because why? Well, I think interest rate policy, negative interest rate policy is extremely poor. Uh, I don't think it's worked, and as we've been talking about. But there is hope, right? And hope we know is not an investment strategy. But there's someone last year in all this coordinated easing that actually tightened interest rate policy, and it's the Reichsbank. And I think this – which country? The Reichsbank? They are in Sweden. Mm. Yeah. Um, I always want to think it's in Iceland for right. Yeah. I don't yeah, know. Yeah. I mean, yeah. and those krona, kroner, karunas, there's all kinds of those uh, very similar sounding currencies. But the SEK, right, is the currency there. So the Swedes, they actually did end up um, hiking rates last year. And they hiked twice, kind of under the radar. Not a lot of people talked about it. And where's their interest rate policy today? It's at zero. So they got off the negative 50 basis points. They hiked in two magnitudes going from negative 25 up to zero. And I think that is something that is, is very important to watch because what did they say that was happening there? The reason they hiked rates because they said the efficacy of negative interest rate policy has been tested. It's no longer at the margin good for there. Now, the kind of poor thing about it is they're still buying bonds, right? So they're still doing some quantitative easing behind it. But at least they're admitting themselves that negative interest rate policy is no longer effective. I would argue that they should say it didn't work. Was right? that
2: is the issue there? Like ECB, we, we heard a lot of talk maybe a couple of years ago that they're running out of things to buy. Yeah, and they needed to loosen their their you know, regulations. Their regulations on how much they could buy. I don't think that in the U.S. we're going to have an issue with having not enough treasuries to buy. <laughs> well, we can so always we, print more, right? So we, we don't yeah. need to go negative yields in the well, U.S. because we can just buy more bonds.
1: But here's the other thing, and we talked about this in, in the kind of summer of last year, and I think it's very important to focus on, too. There's one good thing about negative interest rate policy in Europe and Japan is that they can buy our bonds still. If the U.S. goes negative and investors have no choice but to buy high-quality you can say, is it high quality if it's negative? But let's just say highly rated debt, right? That if you actually put the supply of treasuries and, you know, our deficit's what, like 24 trillion-ish today. And a lot of that's held at Social Security stuff. So there's departmental transfers. So the float's smaller than that. But if those all go negative, what are people going to buy that need to buy high-quality bonds, Right? And they need to get a positive. Because at least you could can, can say, oh, well, the hedging costs are expensive. We know that the Japanese have been buying treasuries and corporate bonds unhedged. Dangerous, dangerous behavior because Vol's important there, especially if the dollar declines. That money is going to get sucked out like a Hoover vacuum. I guess we should call it Dyson now these days. Um, but the thing about it is, is that if you have this amount of, of paper that people need to buy, and now you have Japan negative, you have Europe negative, you have the U.S. negative, where are they going to go? And my joke's Singapore, right? That's a AAA-rated company. How can they handle the, the flow of capital? You can't can. move trillions of dollars of capital into these smaller areas, right? So I think that if we go negative in trade policy for any prolonged period of time— and I'll let you guys define what that prolonged period is. Um, but if we do that, what that ultimately does is it breaks the entire financial system because it breaks the banking system, right? At some point you what's happened with European rates, don't forget, is that they haven't passed those on to the lower tier consumer. It's like 300,000 euros or more at the bank, right? So, you know, if you go on and you work on your paycheck and you have to Sam's point the 3.7% wage growth but the, Fed, but the banks are going to take away 4% a year, which is what people are talking about, what the rate will need to be in the next recession. People are going to revolt at the system. It will be lawlessness. It will be cash. Uh, it will be things that are different parts of the yeah, system. pay me in gold. Right, yeah. Or pay me in commodity. Pay me in something <laughs> yeah, besides this worthless Bitcoin, piece of paper. Man. And you talk about confidence, it goes away. So um, this isn't just talking markets. We got a, We got a long way away from that, and I guess I had a lot to say about that. So – yeah, bring I mean, us back y- in, Sam. Y-
3: you talked a little bit about it. I'm not going to bring us all the way back in, but you talked a little bit about the the reckless behavior and the you know potential, let's say, blood in the street based on this type of needs-based uh, investing. But it's interesting. It, it, we go back to the array of guests that we've had in 2019, and I think there were at least two individuals that came in and they you know they brought in the term debt jubilee. Yeah. You know, as a potential solution for all of this uh, distortion that the central banks have, have you know, coordinated. Um, is that a real possibility, and is that something that you think will be the, uh, the ultimate step,
1: I suppose? I think it's got to look something like that. I, I'm reminded of the financial crisis when you, when you talk about debt jubilee. And what happens is that it, it reminds me of – we've talked about Reichs, Reichsbank being – think of Iceland. Remember the Iceland banking model, Right. What they they created the idea that actually what we're doing in quantitative easing through what the U.S. did, also what, what the eurozone continues to do, the, the Iceland banking model. Remember, there's all those derivative exposures. They levered up their economy, went from a fishing economy to a financial economy overnight. And it, when the crisis came, it wrecked them. They created the bad bank model. You have a bad bank, put all the toxic assets over there. Government backs it up, and it got us through. Now, wh- where where am I going with this metaphor? It's that. The debt jubilee can't happen with one country. The, the, just like Iceland could do the bad bank model in a standalone, in a silo, because they're such a small piece of global GDP. If, let's say, Germany decided, well, Germany is a bad example. Italy decided to do jet debt jubilee, right? Plausible, right? The third largest uh, debt economy in the world, or the third largest debtor in the world, right, is Italy. If they try to do that, what, how do they want to do that? Alone? It will kill their economy. Right. So if it's ever going to be done, just like with all these other monetary policies, it has to be coordinated. And so the story I like to tell is that if you want to give me debt jubilee, it's going to sit like we're sitting at this podcast and we're sitting around a round table. You're going to bring the leaders of, of, the, of the huge debtors in the world around the table. And I say it ends like a Quentin Tarantino movie. Now, I just <laughs> watched the latest one. I watched the latest one. That one did not. No, number nine from him, the Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, did not end like the other eight. But typically, spoiler alert, which oh, was just wasn't a massive shootout. That's all I'm saying. Yeah, know. You know, you know. Uh, <laughs> I'm not saying well, it's it's a
3: fairy tale, right? I went but, in the streets. You had to bring in Quentin Tarantino. Yeah, all but
1: me. but think about it. It's that maybe you owe me money. I owe Lau money. Lau, you owe Jeffrey money. We got a problem. So do well, we? I'm have paying a Jeffrey back. <laughs> I'm paying Jeffrey back. I'll tell you that. Well, right he now. he can actually. Yeah. Uh, he, there's a way he can actually <laughs> take it from you, I believe. Uh, but point being here is that it has to be a coordinated effort. It has to be coordinated because otherwise it can't be done. And so what do we do? Do we change currency systems? Do we do something different? Uh, no one knows what it looks like, but um, we'll bring Keynes in here, the quote from him. It can, it can stay irrational a lot longer than one thinks. At least that's my uh, summary of what he said. So um, it does end that way. So let's talk about one thing that you like to follow, Sam, and that's the stock market. What do you think about the stock market and where we're looking now? We had a big multiple expansion last year. Uh, Earnings growth is going to be roughly zero to slightly negative for 2019. Uh, If you use FACSAT estimates, that's where you get. Um, So you had this huge run in the stock market you're talking about, 30-plus percent. If you use just S&P and you look at earnings, they were flat. So huge multiple expansion. Um, But I like to rewind the clock a little bit. There's something very convenient about 2019, and that was that we were at the lows of the market back about a week before the calendar term. We had this 20% correction in the fourth quarter. So it doesn't look as bad on a multiple basis if one now goes back 15 months or 18 months. So it's not as much of a multiple expansion. So can we get earnings growth here to support the valuation? Not shockingly, uh, if you go back through history, the stock market is some of the best when actually earnings are flat because the market's looking through that, right? Um, so did we eat up all the gains last year, or are we on the point of saying that, you know, earnings are going to come here, rationalize some of this, or are you still worried about your employment cost index?
3: <laughs> no, I think, I mean, I think you hit it. This earnings appear, you know, it seems like in 2020, they're going to continue you know, being flat. I mean, you can do some of the... So-called accounting gimmicks, hand-waving, and talk about EPS—you um, know, perhaps even that has gone by the wayside. If you know, we see buybacks start to—you know—continue to, to start uh, tapering off. So, from that perspective, you know, you may not see the same type of multiple expansion that we you know saw in 2019. But I think one of the things is, you know, I want to take uh, my cue from one of the. Um, Webcast titles that we had, or you know, our, our our presentation titles that we had, which was you know, the Fed rules everything around me. I think there's one thing that you can't discount. For uh, no, 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 no. It was
1: not frame. It was dream. It was debt rules everything. everything.
3: Okay, I turned it around. I think yeah. in my head, then I did yeah. frame. You know, taking my cue from Wu Clan, Then let's just right. say that and say right. that the Fed rules rules everything around me because as we've seen, you know, the the forward-looking guidance, as well as the fact that we're now in somewhat, you know, again, you know, we may. Argue on whether or not it's QE or not QE, but you know, it seems to be the consensus around this table that at least, you know, we have the slippery slope where what they're doing at the short end of the curve could easily uh, translate to yield curve targeting towards, um, you know, the later stages. That coupled with the fact that we just went through uh, three rate cuts, we have a pretty accommodative Fed. On top of that, we've had J.P. Uh, Jerome Powell come out and say that not only is he Looking to uh, basically, he gave a whatever it takes um, over the course of several um, appearances and said, "You know, we're going to stoke inflation, do whatever it takes to stoke inflation, but also we're going to keep the economy going." So I think you have that as a tailwind for U.S. equities. There are going to be hurdles for it, you know, mm-hmm. moving forward. It's just where is the earnings growth going to come from? Yeah, and I'll, any- I'll extend that.
1: I, I mean, like I think that you you can have this for uh, a period of time until until we lose the consumer. I think risk assets are something you want to own. Uh, the problem with risk assets is that they're well priced. They're priced for that type of thing. So, you know, there is some asymmetry and risk to the downside. But you know, long term, as you think about, it, there typically is a risk premium in, in risk assets. Um, the one that has made us very nervous, you know, and it has over the last year or so, and. I'll, I'll be the first to admit, you know, we, we missed some of the, the good gains you got from the corporate debt market. But we didn't like valuation levels, you know, 30 basis points or 40 basis points ago in spread levels. And so we have tight spreads coming into this year, IG specifically. Uh, high yield, uh, the highest quality junk, as I like to call it, the double the B sector, um, is, is trading at like a 375 type of yield, so that's not even spreads anymore. And if you look at the uh, something we've been focused on for a while is the the double B to triple B spread um, is some of the tightest levels it's been. I think where there's been about three times it's been near this level. We're not at the true true lows, but when you take in double B yields, so we take in the Treasury market plus the spread, it's really hard to see how you can even withstand some form of defaults in that market. And we know something in the double B market will eventually default. So let's play this game. You get three seventy five yield. Okay, And this is, sorry for our, our listeners, it's going to be math. Um, but you got a 375 yield, and you're talking about, you may have some defaults. So let's say these bonds, let's say you don't have defaults. Let's, that's even, let's be nice and just say there's fear. Spreads widen out, bonds come down. I mean, these what, have a spread duration of like seven, eight, something like that. Okay, seems plausible, right? So let's say spreads below 100 basis points. Okay, 100 basis points. So times the spread duration. That says that's how much you lose. You lose seven to eight percent. Get a little bit back from the carry. You that's called two plus years of all yield, not spread yield that you gave away in that downturn. And so it's the people. I understand wanting to do the wrist dance. I understand wanting to do it in the higher quality part of the areas. But everybody's doing it, and so. It's something that I think you have to be very cautious of. And we're just talking about generic markets. We're not talking about single securities there. And you know, there, is some, some, um, there are some attractive opportunities within those spaces. But I, I think that people have to uh, be uh, careful of naively extrapolating what just happened. And we've seen that with fund flows. Uh, you saw it last year that one of the worst performing sectors, albeit positive, was bank loans in the in the credit markets, right? And so you look at bank loans, then they still have net outflows over the year, right? Because the Fed rates, you, uh, if you take the aggregate bank loan market, it yields more than the aggregate high yield market today. Now, Grant, there's some there's some problems in some of the triple C bank loans out there, and it, I think what was the last time we looked at spreads? There was it about 20 percent 20% was a spread on triple C uh, bank loans as in aggregate, right? So there's some dynamics in there that are causing it. But isn't it amazing that the aggregate of a senior secured market, senior secured, has a higher yield than the subordinated unsecured debt below it? Wow. That just says opportunity. Yeah. No, absolutely. And so if you all want to do the wrist dance, maybe you want to think about about some of these dynamics and what the market has given you on the other side. So it's not to be a contrarian for contrarian's sake. But when you look at valuation, it's some of that unloved sectors that actually at least present opportunity. Remember, when you have a lot of yield, like I said, you can make a few price mistakes along the way. Right. It comes down to one of our, our core mantras that we usually apply to
2: derivatives, and that's don't take any risk you're not being compensated for. Right. This, you can apply this to these riskier assets where if you're getting paid you know, a very, very small spread to take tri- tri- double B risk to triple B risk, yeah. maybe go lower down in credit. Right. Probably don't want to load the boat on it, right. but, but size but,
1: right, size it accordingly. You know, right. change it, mix it with cash. But so I tell people, so buying double B high yield bonds. Why not just buy a little bit of S and P five hundred and pair it with a lot of cash? Yeah. At least you have upside, right? And then you you have something in there, right? And so, because I think the downside cases at some point look very similar. Right uh, at this stage, so I think that that's the thing. When I'm looking at the market right now, it's it's trying to really look at. Okay, I don't see us having a recession in the U.S. right now. I mean, we've lowered our probabilities significantly. A lot of that's just the consumer tend to be there. That non-manufacturing index is what I focus on. Until that thing dips below into contractionary territory, you know, I just don't think we have problems. You got to watch the jobless claims, watch that side of the equation, watch corporate America to see if they're changing the dynamics of that consumer, but. I mean, the consumer had really bucked the trend last year in terms of what you saw in a lot of the economic data, and they continued to keep the U.S. economy resilient. And so, again, absent the fear, even through the trade conflicts, all the stuff that costs there, some of the cost of goods and in, in targeted markets going up, um, it didn't derail the consumer. And so, I think that's that's the key here. And again, I know a lot of that is lagged um, data as we get it, but uh, at this point, it's really hard to see, absent some. You know, some exogenous event or some change in policy out there that, you know, you're going to derail that at this point in the cycle even. So by risk is what you're saying. I'm not afraid of it. I'm not afraid of it. Uh, You know, look, if you look at our portfolios, uh, we have more risk on than we have really than we have rates trades on. The curve's too flat to me. Um, given where we are, if we have this trade conflict solved, why don't rates trade above where we were before we caused the last problem? Right? Which was on July 31st, the ten-year trade around two. Uh, if we use kind of some of our indicators, you know, we see fair value in the treasury ten-year treasury being roughly, I don't know, two twenty to two forty-ish. It may cause a problem because the last forty basis points caused a problem. Uh, but remember, you know, eighteen months ago, rates were 140 higher. Right. So you got to remember that, uh, that rem- when, when it when that spring coils for a while, it tends to when it when it blows off, it tends to shoot a lot quicker than people think. And so uh, I think that, you know, we've seen some conflict out there in the first couple of trading days of the year. Uh, there's been this uh, you know geopolitical risk out there that's caused rates to rally a bit. But two weeks ago, the tenure was 195. Right. And it looked like it was going to 220. Absent this thing. So uh, we resolved this thing while we're talking, the president speaking, who knows what he's saying right now, uh, but you know hopefully we're smart enough to not uh, continue to engage in this conflict, and if so, I think you know there, there is the potential uh, for yields to go back up. You probably want to be a buyer of duration at some point on this because it will break uh, some of the risk assets. But I think right now, you, you do want to be biased towards the risk side. So more of a, a range bound on the 10year for the, for the year. Uh, yeah. Maybe yeah,
2: as we get above two or so, maybe buy some more, buy some duration.
1: Yeah, buy a little bit maybe. But, I mean, I, I'd i want to be a buyer like two and a half okay. or more because just like I just – I look at inflation. I want a real yield, right? Right? It's hard to get excited at that 2% tenure because of where inflation is, right? So if you put that together, it's like, OK, we've been in this area for a while. But uh, it seems to be these ranges over the last – like I want to go back to pre Brexit. So if we go back to like early '16, the range in the tenure typically, would is in a 40 to 50 basis point range, and then it shifts, right? And that's exactly what we've been seeing uh, for the last five years or four four plus years. So uh, I still think we're in the same way. We got to blow through two, of course. Um, I think that we will test that at some point, you know, in the next couple of months, absent these exogenous things continuing to drive because we have inflation and at at, a, at really a target level. And so I just think that you should get some risk premium for for taking that investment. Yeah. So Sam, what have we missed? We're getting at the end of time here, and uh, and we're br- we brought in our colleague Eric Dahl here to uh, to do the Sherman says for us today, so that way well, you couldn't cheat like you like to do.
3: Yeah, and he does look like he is getting a little antsy. So maybe we wrap this up and uh, hand it over to. Mr. Eric Dahl for a little bit of Sherman Says, which at this point, since it's the other way around, doesn't isn't my favorite part of the segment.
1: Ah, <laughs> uh, okay. Well, hey, I also know that you hosting isn't your favorite part of the segment either, so we appreciate you kicking us off today. So with that, um, I'll, I'll play the Sam, uh, the Sam Lau role here. And uh, uh, for those of you not aware of the rules of uh, Sherman Says, um, Eric Dahl uh, is going to come in here and ask us a few. Uh, he's going to give us phrases, and we're going to give one-word responses. Sam, I know you've been trying to trying to duck out of that for a year or so. One-word responses, the top of mind, what comes to those phrases, and it'll give you uh, an insight into our thinking. Eric, welcome to the show.
3: Thanks for having me. Hey, hey.
1: <laughs> uh, maybe, uh, I, I think Sam's been trying to coach him to get a new co-host here. He's been trying to get out of that job for four years now. So anyway, Eric, uh, don't yell at, the, yell at our audience, please. Um, you know, do it kind of softly. Okay. Too. Okay. Okay. Very I know you're excited.
3: Thank you. Um, the order today, we're going to have Mr. Sherman, Mr. Lau, Mr. Mayberry. We're going to start with Mr. Sherman, 49ers.
1: Champs. Mr. Lau. Packers. Winners. Mr. Mayberry.
2: Chiefs. I mean, I'll take the Chiefs over the Packers or Niners.
3: <laughs> I didn't lose on that one because that-, that response from Mr. Mayberry was not one word.
1: Okay. Tail risk. Present. Speculative idea. Bitcoin. I was going to say Packers.
2: I was going <laughs> to <laughs> say Bitcoin too, yeah.
3: Upside surprise.
2: I would say S&P 500.
1: VIX currently
3: at 13.7, high for the year.
1: 30. I
2: thought that was a yes or no question. I, I did too. <laughs> uh, but I, I went
1: with 30 because, I mean, you'll, you'll see a spike in vol at some point. It's not to yeah. say it'll trade there all the time, but.
3: Tesla. Silent. Apple. I mean,
2: we don't like iPhones around here, so I would say, I mean, poof. Let the hate mail begin. Yeah. Biggest. Gold.
1: Currency. Gold bullion. Currency. I thought you were going to say soup.
3: <laughs> <laughs> Copper, gold. Good
2: indicator. Repo.
1: Working for now.
3: Liquidity. Necessary. Brexit.
1: Gonna happen. Boeing. Uh, ain't going. The old phrase used to be, if it ain't Boeing, I ain't going. I think if it's Boeing, I ain't going. I never was so happy to see Airbuses in my life. Safety. Harley Davidson.
3: Full throttle. Nissan. I you I two words on that Yeah, one. I, 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 I was struggling. I said, uh, I'm going to uh, break uh, it for the Harley.
2: Nissan. I mean, they're in the news recently with uh, Goshen? Goshen, so that's that's my answer.
1: <laughs> they're in the news recently. No, go- Goshen. That's <laughs> oh, what, okay. Yeah. Was this, are we at the end? One more. We got one more. Wilder versus Fury two. Can't wait. It's going to be great. Um, prediction. I got to go with the American man. I love watching Wilder, but he looked kind of weak in the last fight, you know. But man, that one—he got one punch power, but also remember. Fury's got Frankenstein in him after that last fight. So, can't wait. That was yeah. the Undertaker move from Yeah, WWE. Feb 22. Uh, those of you who don't watch boxing or have been missing it, man. It's time to come back to boxing. It's going to be a great, great fight. Is that the longest Sherman show or Sherman says answer ever. No, you've no, no, you obviously no. don't listen. I've I ramble to every single one. Okay. Boxing versus MMA.
3: Sport versus real fighting. To Mayberry. Last question, Conor McGregor versus Cowboy Cerrone.
2: I, I don't watch enough boxing to know, or MMA, or whatever it is to know, uh, but it sounds fun. All right, well, that, that
1: there we have it. All right, well, thanks, Eric, for coming in. Thanks for bringing all your passions in here, your cars, your Motorcycles, you're fighting, uh, combat sports. So, anyway, thanks everybody for listening. We've got a good lineup for this year on the Sherman Show. Can't wait to reveal our guests. Our next one, I think you're going to really like. Uh, we'll let you tune in in a couple weeks to see that. But don't forget, you can follow us on the Twitter at uh, Sherman Show Pod if you want to get some insights uh, from what we're talking about out there. We have a YouTube channel. I highly encourage everyone to check that out youtube.com backslash double line capital. Um, it's very important to look at that because uh, you can actually see what Sam looks like uh, with this pencil behind his ear and all the work he puts in here. But also, we have a roundtable we just recorded uh, this week here. Uh, it's been, we had some great guests on there. Uh, can't wait to share those insights with you. You can catch that again at YouTube.com backslash Double Line Capital. Uh, remember, you can follow us on you can listen to us on, at the Double Line website, iTunes, SoundCloud, Spotify, some other stuff I don't know. We're working on all those things. we got some LinkedIn. we got some other stuff. We're trying to figure out how to be social with the media out there. So uh, Sherman Show at DoubleLine.com for any feedback. Again, thanks again for all the listeners. Looking forward to 2020. And, again, I hope you're excited for the guests that we have lined up because it's going to be a great year in terms of the podcast. So take care and speak soon.
0: presentation represents DoubleLine's intellectual property. No portion of this presentation may be published, reproduced, transmitted, or rebroadcast in any media in any form without the re- express written permission of DoubleLine. DoubleLine has no obligation to provide any updates or changes. To receive permission from DoubleLine, please contact media at DoubleLine.com. Neither DoubleLine nor any of its affiliates makes any representation or warranty as to the accuracy or completeness of the statements or any information contained in this podcast and any liability therefor, including in respect of direct, indirect, or consequential loss or damage, is expressly disclaimed. DoubleLine is not providing any financial, economic, legal, accounting, or tax advice in this podcast. The receipt of this podcast by any listener is not to be taken as constituting the giving of investment advice by any double-line entity or individual to that listener, nor to constitute such person a client of any double line entity. The portfolio risk management process includes an effort to monitor and manage risk, but does not imply low risk. Copyright 2017, Double-Line Capital.